Today on the Wood Preacher Podcast, splitting the Nephites, physical things bound to spiritual power, and being overzealous. I'm Brett Jensen, and this is the Wood Preacher Podcast. Today we are looking at Mosiah chapters 7 through 10 in our Come Follow Me reading. Um, So there are a couple of events that will be going on here as we get into these next few chapters in Mosiah that can be a little bit confusing. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about just an overview of what we have so far um, in terms of the splitting of the Nephites. Uh, the family of Lehi, where our main story began in the book of First Nephi, so Lehi's family left Jerusalem and arrived in the Promised Land where they lived together for a short time, but after Lehi's death, Nephi took those who believed in Christ, uh, his own family, the families of uh, some of his brothers, uh, and, and their families, and, uh, and they fled north to a new area several days' journey away, and they called this land the land of Nephi. And his people lived in that land for centuries. This was their home, and they were able to be divided from the Lamanites and have a defined border that they could protect to defend their culture and their faith in Christ. Now, Mosiah, the father of Benjamin, led his people north again to a land called Zarahemla, out of the land of Nephi to this new land further north, Zarahemla, where the Nephites joined with another people, the people of Zarahemla. Now, after they had arrived and kind of got settled and some time had passed, some of the original Nephites wanted to go back to the land of Nephi. One of them was a man named Zenith, and he was successful in establishing a society in the land of Nephi for several years. Now, it's going to get more complicated as we continue reading, so we'll probably revisit this with additional detail later. But just the overview for purposes of our reading this week, Ultimately, King Mosiah, the son of Benjamin, not the father of Benjamin, but uh, the son of Benjamin, he wants to know what happened to the people who had left Zarahemla, led by Zenith. So he sent a man named Ammon, not his son Ammon, a different Ammon, and Ammon took a group of individuals to go and seek these people out. Eventually, they get captured and brought to a man named King Limhi. King Limhi is the grandson of Zenith. So a couple of generations have kind of passed. And, uh, and when Limhi learns that Ammon and his group have come from Zarahemla, he is very happy because his people are not doing well. He had sent an expedition up to find Zarahemla and ask for help, 
but his men got lost, and that instead they found a land that was covered in bones and ruins, and twenty and they found twenty-four plates that they could not read. Uh, Limhi thought that they might be the last of the Nephites, so he was very happy to learn that he was wrong. That kind of sets up our scenario here um, for the next thing that I'd like to talk about. Physical things bound to spiritual power. Now, from the days of Adam, uh, physical things have been tied to spiritual benefits, to spiritual things. For example, when men sacrificed offerings to God, their physical killing an animal represented a connection to spiritual power, helping them look forward to the time when God himself would make a sacrifice that would provide spiritual power. This connection was very important, and it's not only through this particular means. Uh, Aaron had a rod, the brother of Moses, and it was used in several different places in miraculous ways, uh, causing it to blossom and develop almonds and causing it to become a serpent and eat other serpents. Uh, it was uh, it was connected to spiritual power. Of course, one of the most obvious and famous examples is the Ark of the Covenant, a physical object, but it was guarded by spiritual rules, and it provided spiritual benefit when it was when the when it was used properly. And it also provided uh, some problems when it was used improperly. For example, in the case of Uzzah, who thought he was going to steady the ark and was struck dead. Or in the case of the Philistines, who put it as a trophy before the image of their god Dagon and found that their image had been uh, totally ruined just by being in the presence of the ark. Um, there were additional examples as well. The clothing of temple priests. There was special showbread used in the temple, only to be used, even though it's a physical thing that could be eaten, it was only to be used in specific ways. The sword of Laban in the Book of Mormon, a physical item that represented a spiritual uh, a uh, obedience that Nephi had and passed on to his posterity, that they would be defended if they followed the Lord. Uh, the liahona, another physical object that literally only worked uh, conditional on the faith and righteousness of those using it. And we come to the items in our reading today, seer stones. Let's read a couple verses. Uh, this is in Mosiah chapter 8, verses 12 through 13. And I say unto thee again, Knowest thou of any one that can translate? For I am desirous that these records should be translated into our language. 
for perhaps they will give us a knowledge of a remnant of the people who have been destroyed from whence these records came, or perhaps they will give us a knowledge of this very people who have been destroyed, and I am desirous to know the cause of their destruction. Now Ammon said unto him, I can assuredly tell thee, O king, of a man that can translate the records, for he has wherewith that he can look and translate all records that are of an ancient date, and it is a gift from God. And the things are called interpreters, and no man can look in them except he be commanded, lest he should look for that he ought not, and he should perish. And whosoever is commanded to look in them, the same is called seer. So here we have King Limhi, as we discussed before, who had these, these records that he wanted interpreted. And Ammon explained that King Mosiah had access to physical items, interpreters, seer stones, through which a person could look and receive spiritual knowledge. Now, the further humanity progresses technologically, the more mystical and superstitious this sort of thing seems. Even religious people frequently view the religious devotion as a matter of prayer and of intellect, totally separate from the physical world. You get more and more of that even within the Church of Jesus Christ. Certainly, this offers modern society a greater degree of protection from spiritual charlatans who sell snake oil or false relics or placebo-based superstitions. However, this tendency could also interfere with the faith of people in general to believe that God is capable of manifesting his power in any degree of physicality. In some cases, this view relegates God himself to becoming a placebo. The idea that if you believe in him, you can feel better. And that's really the limit of God's interactions with people anymore. The Book of Mormon confirms that God's power is not reserved for spiritual matters alone. Physical stones were used in several places to provide divine light, knowledge, and truth, including the Jaredites, which will be discussed toward the end of this year, and here in this passage, in this reference to the seer stones. This physical item provides a useful medium through which divine knowledge can be effectively communicated. The 24 plates that were discovered by Limhi's people were translated and provided meaningful guidance to the Nephites. An abridgment of this translation is found in the Book of Ether, which we will discuss later this year. In terms of applying this principle, it may not be appropriate for everyone to hunt for stones into which they can receive, they can look and receive revelation. But physical objects should still be a part of modern worship. This includes physical processes such as in ordinances with immersion in water, 
during our baptisms, the consuming of physical bread and water in the observance of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and the use of consecrated oil for the blessing of the sick and afflicted, as done in the New Testament, as we do even to this day. Clothing associated with temple worship may be mocked by enemies of the church, but even in the Bible, being clothed in particular manner was tied to the reception of spiritual power. In addition, one ought not be content if their devotions have no application in the physical world. This is this is the the faith should intersect with our actions. Praying for the poor and needy without actually imparting goods or service or money of our own substance to help them is not actually living our faith. Expecting spiritual support in marriage without living the physical aspects of chastity and fidelity is not actually living our faith. Believing that we are the children of God, sent here with a specific purpose, and then neglecting our bodies or refusing to live the Lord's commandments in the word of wisdom is not actually living our faith. Religion that has only spiritual and no physical components provides minimal spiritual benefit and no physical benefit. Just as a spirit and body are joined together in every human being, so should the spiritual and physical elements of our faith be joined. This is central to our purpose here on earth. All right. Um, After this introduction, we get into the record that begins with Zenith. Zenith explains his process in coming out of the land of Zarahemla to return to the land of Nephi. Um, I can imagine that if you had been in a place for centuries and you were forced to leave, that might be painful. And I imagine that you would hope that any sort of move away from that, you would you would want that to be temporary. Who wouldn't want to eventually reclaim what was lost? But if that's the case, why did Zenith describe his desires as overzealous? Let's read the passages. This is Mosiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. I, Zenith, having been taught in all the language of the Nephites, and having had a knowledge of the land of Nephi, or of the land of our father's first inheritance, and having been sent as a spy among the Lamanites, that I might spy out their forces, that our army might come upon them and destroy them, but when I saw that which was good among them, I was desirous that they should not be destroyed." Therefore I contended with my brethren in the wilderness, for I would that our ruler should make a treaty with them. But he, being an austere and bloodthirsty man, commanded that I should be slain. 
But I was rescued by the shedding of much blood, for father fought against father and brother against brother, until the greater number of our army was destroyed in the wilderness. And we returned, those of us that were spared, to the land of Zarahemla, to relate that tale to their wives and their children. And yet, I, being overzealous to inherit the land of our fathers, collected as many as were desirous to go up to possess the land, and started again on our journey into the wilderness to go up to the land. But we were smitten with famine and sore afflictions, for we were slow to remember the Lord our God. Nevertheless, after many days wandering in the wilderness, we pitched our tents in the place where our brethren were slain, which was near to the land of our fathers. All right, so in this passage, we have a description where Zenith seems to be the level-headed one. He sees that which is good among the Lamanites, and he argues that there should be a treaty, that maybe they can get this land back, that things can work out peacefully. And there's a big fight over that when he is ordered to be executed. So would that not have been the overzealous position, the one who says we should kill them all and anyone who disagrees with me should be killed. Uh, yeah, I, I would also call that man overzealous. Zenith's justification for himself being overzealous comes a little bit later. He says this, And it came to pass that I went again with four of my men into the city, in unto the king, that I might show of the disposition of the king, that I might know if I might go in with my people and possess the land in peace. And I went in unto the king, and he covenanted with me that I might possess the land of Lehi-Nephi and the land of Shilom. Now, it was the cunning craftiness of King Laman to bring my people into bondage that he yielded up the land that we might possess it. Therefore it came to pass that after we had dwelt in the land for the space of twelve years, that King Laman began to grow uneasy, lest by any means my people should wax strong in the land, and they could not overpower them and bring them into bondage. Now they were a lazy and an idolatrous people. Therefore they were desirous to bring us into bondage, that they might glut themselves with the labors of our hands, that they might feast themselves upon the flocks of our fields. Therefore it came to pass that King Laman began to stir up his people, that they should contend with my people. Therefore there began to be wars and contentions in the land. All right, so the the overzeal is that he did not see through the ruse that King Laman presented. He did not recognize the danger of their enemies because of the degree with which he wanted to possess this land. That realization only came after his people were attacked, and some of them were slain and robbed. That recognition is really important. A person with the best intentions, who attempts to act in the right way, can still miss danger and suffer as a result. 
Now, of course, I'm not saying Zenith is a bad guy here. Zenith is only pointing this out to show that he was not considering all of the danger. And it's not even necessarily bad to want to go back and inherit the land of Nephi. I think wanting to do this in a peaceful way was perfectly okay. But a good person might similarly intend to have good friend friendship and kindness and underestimate temptation and find themselves breaking the law of chastity. A good person might intend to learn something from critics of Christ or of his church, overestimate the strength of their own testimony, and find themselves vehemently fighting against those they once loved. The point is, being overzealous in this case means ignoring actual danger. And the best defense against this is not crawling up in a hole and burying our talents and waiting to die lest we make a mistake. It's multifaceted, but part of it is learning from the mistakes of others. We cannot afford to neglect the scriptures. There are a lot of people who have been faced with similar uh, ideas with which we are confronted. And we can learn a lot about the consequences of choices that they made. Uh, it's also about becoming humble, being willing to receive correction without becoming bitter or resentful is not easy to do. But it can make a huge difference when our leaders who are able to spy real danger or warn of actual uh, distress, give us counsel, it's worth being humble and following that counsel. Danger is real. But I think it's just as vital in this discussion to point out that so is help. Jesus Christ has incredible power to rescue this will prove to be another vital message as we continue studying about the people of Zenith. Danger is real, ultimately, but the counsel of prophets and apostles, the wisdom of scriptures, can spare us from actual harm. God is not just a spirit. We become better when we see how his power connects to physical things, including to us to our real lives. It is worth seeking to understand complex situations as they appear in the scriptures. Next week, we will look at Mosiah chapters 11 through 17, studying the ministry of Abinadi. Of course, we appreciate all the support for the Word Preacher podcast. Continue to study the Book of Mormon on your own. And as always, Fight on.